You're listening to World of Empowerment Radio. Your station for practical spirituality in a changing world. And here are your hosts, Angel Rose and Ahanu. So we're delighted to bring on Gary Salyer. And Gary is the author of the book Safe to Love Again. And we met Gary at a workshop and it was our pleasure indeed to, to meet him because he's at what I think is the cutting edge of this area of healing hurt and trauma and his work where he's saying it's safe to love again is a beautiful, concise concept. Mm-hmm. You know, people, people have it called it all kinds of different things and people promise all kinds of different things. But when you say it's safe to love again, that's what attracted me. I found that very, very reassuring that no matter what goes on in our lives, tell us, Gary, how did that begin for you? What made you put it together in the form of a, a book and a video series? Okay. Well, first off, I want to say thank you for having me on this, uh, Angel and Ahana. This is really great. Thank you for having me. Well, for me, it really does come out of my own pilgrimage. Uh, coming out of a, a very dysfunctional alcoholic family where I had a borderline mother and I swore I would never be divorced. And uh, even my, I took a, I was a psych major and I had this test when I was 22 and the professor was telling me I got this thing, strength and that strength based on the personality test. And then he goes, oh, I should probably just mention it. You have a 90% chance of being divorced. Oh, and just, just, oh, by the way, you know, and it so shook me up. I delayed graduation and I literally got a third degree in marriage and family. And I said, glad I dodged that bullet. Well, 12 years later, I'm going through a divorce. I'm going, my God, I had two majors. What am I, you know? And so then I do like seven years of therapy. I do all these workshops in between marriages and I have a second one go south on me. I'm going, what is up? And, you know, there was a part of me that, said, that looked to the universe and said, you know, look, I have done my work. <laughs> what is up? And what I found out was it didn't, whatever I'd gone through, all that learning, all those degrees, and God bless uh, therapy, it did a lot for me, but it left me managing my pain. It didn't change the underlying patterning, essentially. It just got me to manage it better. And I swore to God that uh, it, it took me to crack the code of the rest of my life. That's what I would do. And I was dedicated to say, what truly changes one's fate with love? So you can have that secure, beautiful, safe, loving relationship. Because after my second divorce, I was scared to death. And I was showing up as Mr. Wrong all over the place. Right, right. Mm. I know, you know, when it happens twice, you, you must really have been questioning yourself and your sanity. Oh, the first time, it was 100% her problem. <laughs> you know, maybe 110%, right? And the second time is like, oh, this, and I began to doubt myself. Yeah. Uh, especially when I began to notice that the patterns of the first two marriages were showing up and I was literally scared. The what really got me into this was I deeply loved one woman about 12 years ago, and there was only one person to blame. I showed up as Mr. Wrong. 
and I had all these high ideals, but some part had low expectations mm -hmm. and, and sabotaged. And when I looked in the mirror the day after she broke up with me, I, I, I remember this like come to Jesus moment. I looked and I said, son, you're the only reason this is happening. And this, you have got to start showing up better for the people you love because this is wrong. Was that, do you think that was the turning point where you moved into that possibility that it was safe to love again? Do you think that was the, the crisis point right there? It was the crisis point that told me I had to, there had to be a better way. Right. You know, there were people out there that have beautiful relationships like you two do. And I said, well, well, what's making, what's making the difference? Why, why, why do they get in? And I don't, you know, I felt like the kid that was, you know, in detention over recess. <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I knew some people had the right. So I said, if some people do, then we all must. And it took me a few years to discover what I have, but I knew I had a birthright to more. Right. I like that phrase, you had a birthright. That's fantastic. So tell us what you discovered. What's underneath the experiences people have? Like those sorts of patterns that repeat themselves over and over again. What did you find? Well, you know, when you were in the world of transformation, we both are there. How many, how many of us times, if you're out there listening, have we heard of limiting beliefs? These limiting beliefs, well, I'm not, I'm not enough, right? Or I can't be seen or... Success is for somebody else. The fact of the matter is, they're not running. They're not running the bus. Uh, that comes online when you're about three. But between zero and three, and this is what I really found interesting, between zero and three, your brain gets what I call six rights. Six rights. Rights. You get a right to exist, a right to have your needs met, a right to separate and belong, which means I get to be a me and with a, a big supportive we around me. Not just a me, but a me and a, and a we. Mm -hmm. And that we is important, you know, uh, not one or the other. Uh, you, I get to create my own experience. I get to have voice and choice. I get to assert. And I get to love and be loved. And those rights are like cookie cutters the brain uses. Uh, and if we have unworthy, I mean, we don't have a full set of rights then we use those missing rights and we won't be able to attract. So if I don't have a right to have my needs met, I'll attract a taker. If I don't have a right to create my own experience, uh, man, I don't know how, you know, my partner turned out to be so controlling. It just seems like a conspiracy of the universe, but it's actually not a conspiracy. It's the cookie cutter. It's the right in your brain that says, I can only have that which is less than, you know, of my full rights. So, what I learned is these rights, these cookie cutters, these permission slips uh, that we get usually between zero and three, though sometimes later experience can affect it, are controlling all of our experience. And when we upgrade those and we get a full set of rights, love shows up very differently. Wow, that's very interesting. So how do you discover which right might be distorted in you? Or is, is it more than one? But we can have more than one. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, when I was born, uh, my mother was really looking for uh, uh, a daughter. And obviously that didn't happen so much. <laughs> and I did find out I wore pink for the first six months of my life. <laughs> <laughs> but my mother, but my mother, 
uh, refused to name me in her disappointment for three weeks until the state of Ohio sent a, uh, two police officers out. And when she refused, they said, we can take you to some place that you can think about it or you can name me. <laughs> wow. So I don't think I got a lot of right to exist. And that feeling that you get when you have a right to exist is this beautiful reference feeling, as I call it, of welcome with joy. I never felt like I did, I, that the world was my cup, the oyster. oyster. Uh, so no matter what I did, I would find people and I would create situations where I didn't give people a really great right to exist either. Now, without a right to exist, people without that right tend to get either intellectual or very spiritual. Mm. You could have predicted a PhD right there. <laughs> either, what was the first thing you said? They either get what or very spiritual? They get either intellectual, very intellectual, because they don't have a right to exist. They jump out of their body, they jump all over their left brain. And these people are the people that show up and they're not present. They just don't seem to listen to you. That's, and imagine what that does for relationships. When, when I'm working with couples and he or she says, oftentimes she says, he's just not present. He doesn't listen, he doesn't make eye contact. I have a pretty good idea that they have a missing right to exist. That's just one way it works out. Uh, and uh, well, that, that's be true of me with my mother who made it clear that she never wanted me. And how did you deal with it? Uh, I don't your... know that I completely have. I mean, it, it showed up as rejection constantly. Yes. Uh, from partners in one way or another, you, nor, usually physically. Mm. Well, again, because they love me spiritually, love me mentally, but they don't love me physically. Yes, I don't have I don't have the financial support I want. Mm. Well, those are two very earthy things, aren't they? Yeah. Well, the first two rights are about as earthy that and the right to have your needs met. You know, right. and that's where the baby feels. I can reach out to mommy and daddy. Mommy, daddy, we're saying, oh, you cute thing. What do you need? Right. Yeah. That's and you know, a lot of times we kind of reach out with little alligator arms when we don't have that right because we got slapped back. We go, well, maybe I have my needs met, maybe just a little bit. But if the universe is mirroring and not rewarding or punishing, imagine what happens in the universe if he gets the mirror of this, you know. But the full right is I can reach out for my needs. And you know the universe wants to, you know, when you have a full right to, your, to have your needs met, Angel, uh, it's an abundant universe. Tell me, do you think that if somebody had those six rights met at age three or four or five or six or whatever, but then things happened later, are they as deeply embedded at that stage? Well, that's a great question because later experience does count. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had one client that uh, she, she really had, she didn't have a right to create her own experience. Uh, and she had a very avoidant love style. It means that she was always pulling away in, but she wanted to find love. She was 50 and she was been in, in, a, in an arranged marriage. She came from South America. And between, at 15, the arranged marriage with, was with her and a 39-year-old friend of her father. Now, you kind of know that most 15-year-olds aren't thinking of their honey as a 39-year-old that looks, that's the same age sure. as daddy, right? Yeah, yeah. Not exactly. Yeah. And before 15, her parents were wonderful, secure, and she had a secure love style. 
but they made, they just wanted her in the best of, you know, they wanted her to be provided for, but they made a horrible mistake, they, which took away the right to create her experience. And what she said to me, it was the greatest line I've ever heard. In the first session, she goes, Gary, I feel like a ghost writer has written my life. Wow. And I won a New York Times best-selling love affair. <laughs> and so you're absolutely right. We know that about, uh, you know, there's a very good percentage of people that between zero and 20 that they can get these rights, but something happens. A parent dies, you know, um, uh, there's a divorce, whatever. You can, but you can lose them. But if they're given in the first three years, they're more easy to recover because your brain was secure and it kind of knows its way back a little easier. It's a little easier than it was with her. But yes, later experience counts. Wow. So in your work then, you help people hone in on where they don't have those rights working. Exactly. I go underneath the limiting belief and I go back to those cookie cutters. And if you give all six of those cookie cutters all back, you don't wind up being uh, anxious or avoid. The anxious love style, that's attachment theory. The anxious love style is always afraid, when does love go away? I've, my own experience, they almost always have a missing right to have their needs met. Uh, and the anxious, or a missing right to create their experience. Uh, if they're avoided, then somewhere along the time, they were probably not welcomed with joy, they were not given a right to exist, or they were given too much of a right to separate, oh, go over there, go over there, go over there, but no right to belong. Mm. So they, 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 don't, they don't have a right to be in a we. And, it, and a we feels horrible to them. So, uh, you know, those are the two. But when you get all six of these rights up in your, in your brain naturally feels these four feelings that come from them. The four feelings are uh, welcomed with joy, worthy and nourished and met, cherished and protected, and empowered with choice. If you are feeling those four feelings, you have these six rights, then you have a secure love style. And at that point, your brain takes no BS, gives no BS, starts picking better partners, and shows up as a better person in a couple relationship. And when you counsel people in those circumstances, uh, in terms of the solution, you know, the resolution, is it just recognizing that this happened and allowing it to come to surface level awareness? Or is there more therapy involved? Well, you know, I wouldn't call it therapy. I, mine's more a transformational model. Uh, uh, in the book, you know, knowing it is one thing. We're working mostly with this part of our brain when you find out, oh, I have a missing right. But the right is back here in this early part of your brain, your limbic system. And you have, and that's basically a part of your brain that's 100 million to 350 million years old. That part doesn't use language. It only uses pictures and sounds and feelings. There are techniques to upgrade this part so it is safe with what the person that says, hi, I'm, I'm a Hanu, I'm an angel, or I'm Gary, or I'm Ted, or I'm Susie. You know, what the, the real key is to go back and add resources so that whatever flavor of safety that early part was seeking when it, when it gave up the rights, because at one point in time, if, it, if the brain gives up rights, it's because uh, it's taken the best deal available. Right. Right. And if all we got to do is give it that beautiful sense of safety on its terms, 
then love shows up differently. And then we can tie it to what you want. If we don't work with it and get it safe on its terms with that missing right, uh, with feeling that way, uh, it is, it's, it'll fight you. And that's not a good thing. This is not a war of wills. This is getting into deeper part of your brain in a way that uh, uh, most people have never experienced. I want to ask you a, a strange question now, Gary, and it's to do with the fact that I'm Irish and living in the United States. Mm -hmm. And here, here in this country, one thing that surprised me when, when I first got my driving license was, I was reminded very strongly that this wasn't a right as it is in most countries, it's a privilege. Yes. Driving license I'm talking about. Yes. So when you speak about these six rights, do you think that privilege could be one of them at some point? Like, does, does, are they all rights or are some privileges? The, no, the, the, uh, the term in the original research that's called uh, uh, Neo-Reiki and Developmental Psychology, where I got this from, I just found it to be ex so extremely useful. Uh, these are organismic rights. That means every organism on the planet has them because they have been given life. There's oh. no privilege here. Right. Uh, an amoeba has a right to exist. <laughs> sure. Amoeba has a right to reach out to the universe in its own ways and pull in nutrients, yeah. right? It has a right to live in the colony with other amoebas, right? right. This is not about privilege. These are these are so, the rights that life gives us. But also where I'm coming from with that question is that yeah. I was kind of half suspecting that it might be a case of some of these rights only granted to certain classes of people, maybe. Because when mm -hmm. you said belonging to the society or belonging to the family, you know, if, if, if there were class distinctions or uh, what do they use in India? The, the, yes. the, the caste system, for example. So only if you belonged to that would you have the right. Yes. Well, I think, I think anything that's socially in the environment can affect the way our brain has these rights, right? I mean, look at what has happened. Look what happened in our culture when we brought over African-American people and then did horrible things to their family for generations of which we still see effects. Mm -hmm. If that doesn't split the right to love and be loved for most, uh, for many, many families, I don't know what does. But they, but they still have a right to love and be loved. That, that's what they were born with. What life gives them can be a, another thing. Right. Yeah. Can you give me another example, Gary, of what the solution would look like? So I come to you and, and we nailed down my missing rights. Mm -hmm. Okay. What do yeah. we do next? What do we do next? Well, the first thing we do is we stop making any part wrong. <laughs> you know. Okay. Okay, uh, and we know that uh, at some point in time, uh, a brain, when it sees it's not safe, say it's not safe to be seen. Say you've got a, an alcoholic parent that when they see you, they tend to go off with punishment in ways that you'd rather not. You get beat, right? Well, you don't want to be seen, right? That's the best deal. So you take away the right to maybe assert or maybe to create your experience or the right to, to belong, right? Now, and what it does is I think the, the brain takes that right and puts it away in like a layaway plan for the day it can be safe. It's not, it's in some ways missing, it's missing, but only operationally, but it's still there. It can be recovered, but it's being, it's being kept away in safekeeping yeah. the day. 
the brain, and a lot of times, this is why humans have hope. They hope to have that relationship, and they, they put their right to have their needs met or a great partner up there in hope. And the catch-22 is they have more right to hope than to have. And it's a great day when you make a brain safe with having love, and they no longer have to hope. They can have. Because there's a reason the marriage vows is not to hope to hold, but to have and to hold. <laughs> okay, let's take a quick little break right here. And when we come back, we want to move more into that opportunity for hope for people. Because I think that you mentioned about humans in general, having hope is what keeps us going, as it were. And for people who are listening and watching, who may be in relationships where they feel that, oh, maybe some of these uh, rights are missing, how, how, how you can help them have that hope Again, so we want to just talk a no, little bit. Have again. Have, have to have the have again. <laughs> to have the have again. Yeah, because we want to look a little bit into uh, people's relationships becoming better rather than considering the possibility of splitting up and and breaking up the relationship. So let's do that when we come back, and and we'll also remind our listeners and our viewers that we have Gary Salyer with us, who has a fabulous book called Safe and Safe to Love Again. And, has, and we want to talk about that when we come back as well, the video series that you have going with it. So we'll be right back after this. Ahanu's book, The Reincarnation of Columbus, is his true story of the loss of his first child, his pain and struggle with grief, and the guilt that followed. It forms his entire philosophy of life, and is a superb rendering of the unfolding of spiritual awareness. The reincarnation of Columbus is a true epic voyage, from the pain and sorrow of a father's grief to a new world of empowerment, love, and forgiveness. Get your copy on Amazon.com or on Kindle for $2.99 by searching for A-H-O-N-U or visit http colon slash slash the reincarnation of Columbus.com. That's all one word. The reincarnation of Columbus.com. Well, we're back. And we, you left us hanging. Ahano stopped for commercial right when you were going to give me the solution. <laughs> so, so tell me what it would look like, Gary, if we, once we nail it down. Yeah. How does the repair happen? Well, one of the things we know is that there's no uh, unresourceful people. There's only unresourceful states. Uh, there's some part that knows it's got it. So what we do is usually, and there's a lot of different techniques I use when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with people, but the, it's called re-imprinting. We go back to the little one, the very first time that the little ones made the decision oh, I can't have my needs, it's not safe to reach out, or I just don't feel very worthy, or I, I'm not enough. Those are two other ways. And we, and we, when we go back, and we, with much rapport, we start adding resources, and we add, and we might have the little one look at all the little, imagine all the little three-year-olds in the world when that little one was three. Which one of them don't have a right to, to have their biggie or their bottle? Oh, they all do. And then we, and the most, and then we get that feeling when we bring it back. 
to the little one when they're feeling that. And that actually rewires our brain. There's wow. a, yeah. Uh, that's easy. That's, that's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's complicated getting the exact moment and, and, get, and there's sometimes resistance you'll get. And it's, now that's the thumbnail version of what goes on. It's not quite that easy in practice, but that's essentially bringing back these beautiful, and in a way they may say things and then you have to find other ways to make it safe. But you're taking that feeling and I just work, you know, it's sometimes at the end of a session, a half an hour, you know, out of an hour and a half session, maybe just working with that. Or sometimes it can be other parts of the brain that may not always that, but we want to work very carefully so that that little one feels safe having that feeling again. Oh, it's okay to reach out. It's right. an art form to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's why people have a lot of neck pain? It can be if, 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 and I, it would be different. I would have to find out what, what was going on and where that, what the neck is related to. I would just intuitionally have to step into it. All right. Another question I have is, you know how you hear that people choose their parents, you know, do you, believe, do you aspire to that, that we choose our parents and we choose the circumstances that we're going to experience? Because from what you're saying, it sounds like insanity that somebody would come in and actually have parents that don't want them or they're not welcomed. And, uh, or in my case too, you know, the typical grandparents that were always telling you to go outside and play and you were never in the, you're never in with the adults. You're always cast outside, you know? So is, is there a sole reason somebody would choose that or, or not? What do you think? Oh man, that's a great question on you. Um, I actually write about this in my book because there was a long time that, you know, my, my mother was borderline mentally ill and she was violent. Right. Uh, and there was a part of me that always wondered what I would have been like. Right. Uh, you know, I blamed her for the two divorces. And, and when I started doing the work in, uh, there was a dream that I think came from higher self. And I was in, a, I was on the side of a play of like a, a stage, and my family was all milling around and I couldn't, and my mother was in the middle and I, I just couldn't make sense of this play. I mean, what made sense? This is a dumb play. It doesn't make any sense. And then at some point, some part of me said, oh, they must be doing this for me. Okay. And the, this is what was really amazing. All the family all looked at me and they all said, he's got it. He finally got it. And my one uncle just looked at me and they started walking off. And my mother, who was kind of darker, a doll, uh, she was taller and a little darker. She was like dark gray, uh, stopped and looked at me. And she says, Gary, you asked me to play a hard part, but I played it for you. Oh, and what I believe is I would not have written this work had I not been given those challenges. I would not be able to do what I do with clients and have such great rapport for their stuck states if I, and the are missing rights, if I hadn't had, had four out of six missing rights. <laughs> I, have, I have about that many. <laughs> <laughs> and they can be so reclaimed. So I believe there's a higher purpose and I honor my mother now and I thank her for that. Uh, and I am in, I, I chose this. Now, what's really beautiful about that is 
you know, some people don't, you know, they might fight that idea, but it took all the victim. Right. And in a victim, nothing will disable you like a victim story. Mm-hmm. You know, we know from attachment theory that when you tell a story, it's literally telling your brain how to create future experience. That's the purpose of memory, to, to predict the future. That's why, and you don't want a story that's a sad story. You want, uh, you want a victor story, not a victim story. The moment I changed all that out, my life took off. But we, we have heard you tell us uh, at, on previous occasions when we met the story of, of your mother, uh, how she, she hurt you. So how do you transpose that from the memory of how traumatic it was back then to, to now and recognizing that it was a catalyst in some way to doing the work that you do? Well, that's a great question. See, I personally believe that trauma doesn't have to be your tomorrow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it really doesn't. I made, uh, like, for instance, there was one time where uh, she beat me with a chair. And uh, I, I remember, that's where I gave up my right to assert. I had said, I had literally said something. And uh, when I, uh, and when I, re- actually, she asked me to call black people the N-word and I refused to. Yes. And, and I found out I paid for it. And I remember saying, you can bend me old lady, but you will never break me. But I would never assert, I mean, I learned never to, to assert that pay, and that cost me terribly in my relationships, because then when I wouldn't assert, I wouldn't speak my truth, I'd just be resentful with these women. Mm-hmm. And resentfulness and love don't go together. But what I did was, some part of me then, I, I, I went through life bent over backwards. I did exactly what the little one said. And at one point, I was the best deal available. But when I got, but when I could go back and just work with that little seven-year-old and let him know it's safe to be able to stand up and assert and speak the truth, it was a beautiful moment. That did not have to remain my identity. I am uh, a big believer that our identities are, are malleable and we can choose our identity. I didn't have to choose that anymore. Right. And our identity is a tool of our soul. So we might as well make it the best story and the best identity available. Yeah, yeah. Well, what if you have, you know, that part of yourself that is used to not asserting and then you go in and you say, you know, it's safe to assert now. You're safe. You're okay. And what do you do if that part doesn't believe you? Right. Well, it won't if you don't work with it. I, I call that the willpower method, Right. See, this part gets a hundred, the part that says, hi, I'm Ahan or I'm Angio, uh, it gets 138 bits of information every second. That sounds like a lot. Except this part back here, your reptile and your mammal brain, the mammal brain doesn't, it gets to me. If you get in a fight with that thing, who do you think will win? <laughs> you know, and when you go off and say, I'm going to do a, you know, just a visualization board, or I'm going to do a, you know, a workshop or uh, what it says is, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think the neighbors are up to something. Did we breathe through that? I don't think we did, right? Because it's whatever you breathe through early on, it equates with survival. So if it was not worthy or disempowered, it says those are states that we breathe through. We want them again. So it will fight you for its next breath, literally. It will say, well, she's going to have to go offline somebody, and I'm going to reload this. Wait to just two weeks after that workshop. 
you know, or, you know, or well, let's just talk about our story to the therapist and, you know, over and over, um, you know, it'll do things like that. But if you go back and work in these other ways and you work with it on its terms, not just with the identity, but this early part of your brain and you allow it to get safe with this new feeling, it will gladly take the next, the, the, the best deal. And then you got two million bits of information working for what you want. That's the key. That's the key. Yeah. So when you, the way you've explained that and what you've offered is the kind of hope that I was asking about just before the break there in terms of fu the future of relationships. They, they can have that real hope of mending these issues in themselves from their childhood as well as in their current relationship. But one thought that comes up that I, I want to get an answer to, and that is that I can understand how when you're dealing one-on-one -on -one with, say, a partner in a relationship, that you can arrive at those resolutions. What happens when the couple comes in to you and they're at cross purposes and they may have different, uh, what did you call them, the rights, right. different mm -hmm. rights? Mm -hmm. from different families at different cultures at different times. Yes. Do you, do you have to break them up and work on them individually? Uh, I, yes. As, yes, you do. So <clears throat> when, when couples come to me, I work together and sometimes I break them apart so that, because what always shows up is what I call dueling rights. Yeah. Okay. Dueling rights. <laughs> <laughs> they will pick each other for the other person's missing right that matches theirs. So, you know, like one couple I worked with, she had a missing right to exist and a missing right to, and she didn't have no right to belong. That they often come together. And so, uh, but she, boy, she wanted to belong. Oh boy, she wanted to belong. But she didn't have much. And she, and she was, uh, I worked with this couple when they, uh, as they were dating and they got, they're now uh, married. And when they got engaged, he had, he was out of a divorce, 26 years. He had no right to create his experience or to assert. That went back to daddy beating on him and stuff like that. And he, she had a twin that, was, uh, uh, that died at birth. And it, that infected her ability to feel welcome because um, the other twin died. And you believe it or not, that can affect things. So, but because he couldn't assert when his ex-wife and daughters and colleagues said, oh no, oh no, we don't want the new one around, he could not assert. This is over Christmas, right? So when, she, when, she, when he excludes her, only because he's trying to make everybody happy and he has no right to assert, who do you think she feels? Mm -hmm. No right to belong. And when she gets no right to belong, she comes after him and just, you know, you wuss, and a few other choice words, right? And now he's disempowered. They chose each other. Now, when he gets a right to, to assert, now, now he can choose to help her belong. And when she belongs, she gets everything she wants, and now she can show up to empower him. And that's how we reversed it. Uh, that's, right. You know, and what was really beautiful, um, when this, this woman had been a twin, right? Um, and when I pulled her apart, you know, and we were working with her, uh, she was pregnant with her first child, about eight months pregnant. And we went back there and there was such a, I don't have a right to exist because my twin died. Survival's guilt in the womb, 
right? Or right out of the womb. That wasn't it, even, she didn't wait till age three. She no, had no. This was the right to exist from ELI. And, and we're back there. This, this was prenatal. This was a prenatal imprint. And she was resisting me and resisting me and resisting me. And I'm a great believer the resources are always there. You got to find. And after, I remember working with the, that, that deep imprint for about 45 minutes. And at one point, she has resisted everything because there's such guilt over my twin died and I did. I have no right to exist. Right. And there's some family belonging stuff. And I'm thinking, where is the resource? And I'm and I'm I'm literally decided I'm anchoring some things physically and it's just not sticking. And I and I look down and I see this big, beautiful mother's womb. And all I said to her was, Tell me, does your is your little one safe in your womb? And does she have a beautiful right to exist? She goes, ah, oh, definitely. I said, bring that back to the little one. And the, it was there. Her soul waited for this moment to reclaim it because, and she lit up like her. And it changed the way of, she took in her own right to for a child. And she, she, within two sessions, her marriage changed so dramatically. She That's could be present. Story. Uh, beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's always available. That's what I'm saying. Um, you, there's a bit of an art here. <laughs> you know, I can see how there be a bit of an art. And I understand the guilt, too, about, you know, when you don't have that right to exist, because that's definitely one of my rights. Mm. Uh, from a mother who didn't want me, and then having uh, two partners die, when you knew their parents were projecting onto me, like, why did he die and not you? Oh, wow. That same sort of a continuation, really, isn't it? It's a continuation mm -hmm. of the same thing. And then the guilt around, well, what about it? You know? <laughs> so, Gosh. so that's, uh, but yeah, so let me, t let me ask, are the, are the six, six rights listed in your book? Oh, most definitely. I talk about four feelings as my major thing, but like, you know, if you have a right, you have a feeling. The right to exist gives you a right to be welcome with joy. Yeah, the right and and when you have a right to to uh, exist and you have that beautiful feeling of what you both give and receive. A couple has to give and receive these feelings. You know, that's when you wake up and you say, "Good morning, gorgeous." When she's lying beside you, right? say that to me every day, Gary. Um, <laughs> every right to exist in my life. Every right to exist in my life. Or he comes in from a hard day at work and you go, "How was your day at work?" That's welcome with joy. Mm -hmm. Those those are the things that make and so you and with couples, you're teaching their brain to have the feelings, but then to give those four secure feelings of welcome with joy, worthy and nourished, cherished and protected, and power with joy. If they give each other that liberally and wonderfully, they're going to have a good marriage. They don't have to split up. Most people divorce because they are deprived of two or three or four of these feelings and nobody can handle that for long or not for a lifetime. Yeah. Gosh. Well, tell us about your video series. What's that about? Oh, well, on my website, you go to www.garysalyer.com. Over on the right side, uh, right now I'm waiting for the uh, publisher, but I didn't want to wait for people to get the cool ideas. So there's a video series. You get a series. It's two to four minutes at, at a time. So you can pull up a 
a coffee at Starbucks or wherever and just listen to it. And there's a bunch of the clips that give the big ideas from my book, where I talk about welcome with joy and power with joy. I talk about it for singles on a date. I talk about it for couples and what skill sets you need. And there's also some cool, really wonderful clips from John Gray and Ariel Ford and Paul Terry Brunson. And the cool thing is, is you will feel more inspired, you'll get a feel for love, and you'll get also some practical skill sets for wherever stage of love you are. One of the most heartwarming thing I got was about two months later, I got a, a Facebook message from somebody that said that they were both in their late 50s, both twice divorced, and, they be, and he began to date her. She, he, she was a high school sweetheart, and they started fighting, and they were about ready to break up, and he ran across the love notes. And every week they watched it together and they emailed, they, they Facebooked me and said, thank you, we're together because of these love notes. Oh, that's, that's fantastic. And where can somebody get your book? Well, the book is not out yet. Uh, and I'm looking for that publisher. Just got a literary agent, hopefully in a year. But, the, all the, but if you want to know the big ideas, I, I got every, uh, there's a lot, you know, you get about 30 clips that come uh, to a week for a bunch of weeks, you know, and just little emails, nothing overtaxing, just inspiring and, and practical. But you'll get the big ideas ahead of time. And right. then you'll, you'll have to wait a little longer, but we're working to get them out. Okay. All right. And in the meantime, though, just a second, people can come to you for private sessions, right? Yes. Yes, they can. And how uh, do they contact you for that? Well, if they... If they want to, they can write me at gary.salyer, you know, or actually Gary, Gary at GarySalyer.com, Gary at GarySalyer.com. Write me that. And then what I can do is uh, there's a, a, a love map call. I call it love map where we get in there and I listen to your experience for an hour and it's, it's $97. And then people get, a, and then they can decide from there whether it's, it's right to work with me or not. Right. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, uh, I, I'm inspired, I have to say, Gary, by the work. I didn't realize the depth of work that you do or the, the hope that you offer people. And that's what I got out of this because that's one of the things that we like to offer people too is that sense of hope that, you know, not all is doom and gloom and the world's not going down a slippery slope or to hell in a handbasket. You know, there, are, there, are, there is indeed hope. And, and the, there's a way to fix things. And there's a way to fix things, yeah. Because when you talked about those six rights, I thought that was fabulous. And I, I just want to do it by, mention it by way of a recap now. Those six rights that you talked that kind of kick in at age three, but they can be earlier or later. And you, what, what to do when you feel that your needs are not met. And then we talked a little bit about the, those rights versus privileges. And I found that helpful to me to understand that. And... Just before that break, though, we did talk about how to find that missing right and how to fix it, and that was very helpful. Um, we then went into a little bit about how you help the partners and work together and sometimes separately, but that's also very useful and very helpful. But, you know, the one big takeaway that I, I have from what you mentioned was that trauma doesn't have to be here tomorrow. No, it doesn't. I thought that was a beautiful statement because a lot of us, believe that somehow just because it's in our memories or just because it, it happened that you can never get rid of it, you know? And yeah. That was a beautiful sense that it does not have to be here tomorrow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. So we're so, going to put a link to your, 
to your website down below and we're going to post it out to our people so that they have it. It's Gary Salyer. And Gary is one, one R, G-A-R-Y, Gary Salyer. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And just, and I just want to also add that video series has something that's really new in the book. I talk about the rights of the we, that the we that's between two people has a right to exist, have its needs met. And if you want a bigger and better feeling of we with your partner, it's in the book and I discuss it in four or five uh, little clips in that series. Because what everybody really wants is that, that secure base and that safe haven of a we that just cherishes you and loves you. And that's what the secure love is. It's, a, it's an empowering we. And like you guys have, I can, right now I can just see the we is like some big bridge between the two of you, like a rainbow bridge. Some time back, we did form a, a website called World of Empowerment, and we just diminished the O in the middle. But the uh, acronym for that is WE, W E, World of Empowerment. Yeah. I like it. That's, that's but it's, it's the other things that I noticed, though. I mean, I could pinpoint some of my own rights that have been, you know, how many, how old am I now? And it's always the same, you know, plateau that you can't get beyond. Okay. It's not in our relationship. It's it's with me personally. Yes, so I would love that fix for sure. That well, can be HarryFalier.com. He's the man. Yep. So we're on the right hand side. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Gary. It's great to talk to you. It's been an absolute pleasure, and we will pop the link for people, and we will be in touch with you again in due course. Thank you. Thank you. Namaste. Namaste. Bye. You have been listening to Angale Rose and Ahanu on World of Empowerment Radio, your station for practical spirituality in a changing world.